If you don't take into consideration the way the Chinese economic model is changing, China will go through years of transition and it'll come out the other side in one piece. You're in big trouble, though. Welcome back to The Empire's New Clothes. I'm your host, Brad from MacArthur. Today, we're speaking with Leland Miller. He's the CEO of China Beige Book. Him and his team, for the last 10 years, what they do is they source and publish independent economic data throughout all of China. So if anyone's got their finger on the pulse what's going on, it's Leland. We dive into some of the weeds of the economic data, but more importantly, we look at the macro picture. Where's China been? Where are they going? And how does that fit into the context of a global economy? I hope you enjoy. Leland, thank you so much for joining today. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, looking forward to it. You've got a very interesting position that you hold at China Beige Book. The CEO, you see so many different numbers, small picture, big picture. Um, but before we really dive into the details on China and everything, I want to know a little bit about your backstory. How did you first become interested in China? Well, I started on China back when I was a teenager. Uh, during a time... Oh, wow. Yeah, during a time where people were in the United States, if you can remember that far back, were worried about Japan as an economic competitor. Uh, so I was a, you know, I was a, uh, I went to high school in the '90s, and um, you know, I was doing um, congressional internships every summer, and I was very interested in policy. And everyone was focused on Japan; they had sort of done their Soviet thing, and, and I, I, you know, that, mm -hmm. I wanted to look at something. What was the next thing? And I started looking more and more into China, and I started Chinese language study. Uh, in college, and I moved uh, into okay. policy from there, and uh, uh, ended up uh, spending time in college doing it, going to grad school, getting my master's in Chinese history. Uh, went over to Taiwan and did an uh, intensive Chinese language study for for, for a year. Uh, went to law school as a diversion, and then sort of zipped back into my professional world, which for a while was law, but with a with an Asia side to it. It was capital markets work, and mm -hmm. from there. I looked closer and closer at doing bigger and better things uh, re relating to China. Interesting. I I did not know you had such a language background as well. That that component. That I mean, that must be quite applicable every day. And and then markets. Yeah, back oh, back ahead. in the day, no. Back in the day, very few people had it. Now, all the all the all the rising China stars, you, you have to have the language. Yeah. It makes sense. You can only get away with that so long without having the language component. And so then markets, was that always an interest as well? The kind of almost hand in hand? Uh, not at all. Actually, I, I went into law thinking I was going to be a litigator. And I went into the okay. China field thinking I was going to focus almost exclusively on the national security side and the military side, hmm. uh, which is what I wrote my master's thesis on, Chinese military. Uh, and you know, as I was a practicing lawyer doing capital markets work, um, I was sent over to Hong Kong and was doing deals in you know southern China and 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 I was basically told, look, you, you want to be a litigator, but you want to go to Asia. We don't send litigators to Asia. So I said, all right, I'll pretend to be a capital markets guy for a while, uh, and I loved it. And I uh, got more and more deep into that. And what I realized was that there were very smart people working on all the military and geopolitical issues around U.S.-China relations and around the Taiwan Strait mm -hmm. issues. But so few people were working on the economy. There were really, you could just count them on almost one hand, uh, the people who were doing deep work on China's capital markets and China's economy and, 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 and trade and, and how that would, would, would continue going forward. And I just got roped into it, and that became more and more part of my life. And, you know, now there's definitely a very specific, well, there's a few, but there's a very specific narrative around the miracle of China and how people perceive them as an economic power and where they're going, perhaps. Back at that time, was it very similar, just slightly different? Or what were the narratives that people were, because you say, you say there's not a lot of people working in the capital markets and the in that world at that time. So, but there must have still been a narrative of what China was from an economic standpoint. What yeah, was that it, narrative? It was this point? land of opportunity, but it was such a distant uh, thought to have, have China mm -hmm. as a superpower that it was basically seen as this, this, this curiosity. Um, so, I mean, I made my first mm -hmm. trip to China in 1996, I believe. And, 
you know, I was going around and, and when I traveled outside the major cities, people were, were pointing at me and saying, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger. They thought I looked like Arnold Schwarzenegger, which <laughs> was ha- I was happy at the time to hear that, but I don't look like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, but it just showed that there wasn't much of a tourist industry yet. There, there You know, China was still uh, very much in the early parts of its growth story. Uh, but the more we started looking at it, you know, the more I started looking at it, the more this became a fascination of mine. And it was about 10 years beyond that uh, where it really became my, my full-time job. But the, the opening became evident very early. Interesting. And so what about that transition until, uh, you know, at what point did the vision of China Beige Book begin to take form? Well, look, I, you know, I had been, uh, I had been a lawyer for, for a number of years and, uh, and, but also doing some, some additional work on the policy side involving U S China relations and, and the economic side of, of U S China relations, uh, and also doing some advisory on the buy side. So I would, you know, help, uh, institutions and, and, and hedge funds and others try to figure out what's going on. And the questions I got were just so bad. You know, I kept getting asked, oh, uh, no. you know, do you think this official number is going to move by one-tenth of a percentage point in the next two months? I said, none of this matters. This is not the way to look at China. And I remember one, one uh, senior, senior portfolio manager at a, uh, at a hedge fund looked at me one time with a very sort of stoic face and said, well, why don't you do better then? And, <laughs> you know, I was like, you know, that – that was meant as sort of a, a, a pushback on me, but I, I took that to heart and I started thinking, uh-huh. you know, how would I do this if I had all the resources in the world? Um, how would I look at the Chinese economy better? There was certainly a need. You had enormous commercial relations between the two countries. You had growing investment opportunities to the two countries. And yet the average multi-billion dollar corporation would use a handful yeah. of government data points that nobody believed in. So, you know, I started thinking about this more and eventually I got a team together and we really did a deep dive on it. And it's been, you know, it took us a long time to sort of go through what model would work the most. And we moved to what we thought was the best model, which was something uh, that would be sort of an adaptation of what the Federal Reserve had done with the Hmm. U.S. base book. Now, if you're not in finance, so that was kind of your case study, essentially. Yeah, like, look, we, we said, look, this might be a great way of understanding real trends if we if we if we adapted this beige book methodology. Now, the beige book methodology is very different. It's, it's people who don't do finance probably don't don't even know what that means. Essentially, there's all these these quantitative statistics in the United States, and 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 uh, the beige book is it was a sort of a qualitative flavor. What's going on in China? And so we said, oh, that might be interesting. So, you know, we we set up and we sort of had a survey that was half quantitative and half qualitative, and you know, we were going to put together this sort of uh, picture of not just China writ large, because there's not one China. There's a lot of little Chinas. There's coastal China. There's periphery China. There's large firm China, small firm China. There's private private mm-hmm. sector, state sector. So many different Chinas. We wanted to be able to tap all of these. So we went into this thinking um, maybe we'll just do this this split quantitative qualitative survey. You know, adapting a little bit from the Beth, the Beige Book methodology. What we realized early on was that was a dumb idea. And that the qualitative side wasn't where the action was. That maybe in the United States where you had 10 million data points already that you could trust, the quantitative side wasn't needed. So the qualitative flavor of the beige book was sort of interesting. Mm. In China, none of that existed. There was no quantitative. And what we realized is the quantitative stuff was a goldmine. It could really show what was happening on the ground in, in, in near real time. And so we quickly dropped the qualitative side altogether, which was just a pain to start with. And we really started and going so, into big data in China. For someone who might not be separating those two, can you explain the qualitative and quantitative? Sure. So quantitative is, is, is getting lots of numbers, asking firms uh, you know, uh, what their views are on things and, and getting readouts from those firms, aggregating all the data, and then breaking it down. So basically doing a lot of, of big data number crunching. Uh, and letting that guide the directional trends that you're seeing and just by looking at the data. The qualitative was basically asking people stories, questions, and and tell us about this. What are you seeing here? 
it was interesting, but the real gold mine was in the quantitative stuff because we could we could do that in the tens of thousands of firms, whereas the qualitative would would cap out at a few hundred. So we quickly realized that you know, as as the world has since as well, mm-hmm. that big data is the way to go. And the more inputs you have on this, the more granularity you can have in, in terms of your output. Let's talk about the juxtaposition, juxtaposition between your data and the CCP, the official data. Because some folks are very familiar, but other folks might not be that familiar that the political party publishes the economic data for the economy of China, and it has different shades of trustworthiness. And if you are investing billions of dollars in China, you're going to want to know what the real numbers are. And that's where you come in. So maybe walk us through a little bit of that, you know, why, why China Beige Book is an important factor in here. Right. Well, from the very beginning, uh, I, I, you know, there's been there's always been a problem that the China's government numbers are essentially political numbers. Uh, it's not going to report in, in severe weakness because it doesn't want the government to look bad and want the party to look bad. So there was always a question with, you know, what data are being tinkered with, what data are not being tinkered with. But the problem was also, was also much, much broader than that. And the, when you were looking at data available in the economy, the problem is you just didn't get enough of it. So even if mm. you were to take everything at face value, if you were you know, a corporation trying to do market entry into China, or you were a, you know, an investment fund trying to, to really understand dynamics uh, you know, in, on the ground from, from, from week to week or month to month or even quarter to quarter, you, know, you couldn't use these official data, data uh, inputs because they, were, uh, they just didn't tell you enough of the story. So what we decided to do is, is we wanted to create more data. We wanted to get our hands on all the different stories that, that China was telling. And, you know, in recent times, this has become crystal clear why you do it. I mean, when, when China was recovering from its, its partial COVID shutdowns in 2020, there was a story being reported and by the government. And that story was true, but it wasn't the story of China. It was the story of large firms, state-owned firms in the largest cities who were recovering faster and usually on the industrial mm. side, whereas most of China was, was having a lot more difficulty, just like the rest of the world, with dealing with the COVID reopening. Small firms were hurting. Uh, you know, Firms that were not in larger cities were hurting. So very uneven recovery. And the more you, you get a broad look at China across sectors, we track it across you know, six key sectors, 37 different subsectors. We break all the data down by private versus state and large versus SME versus micro and where the firm or is a Chinese firm, is it a foreign-owned firm? Uh, And so when you look at these different buckets, you usually get very different stories. And that's really important because, you know, I'd say 95% of the viewpoint that foreigners have on China are through a single lens. And, you know, it's usually the lens of what's happening in Beijing, Shanghai, or, or maybe uh, maybe one of the cities in Guangdong. And it's, it's, that's sometimes what's happening, and that's sometimes uh, not what's happening. Interesting. So sometimes it's fabricated, sometimes it's not. It's just focused on possibly the best sector, the best story at the moment. Well, yeah, look, you, you never know what's real, what's not. The government's focused mm. principally on stability. So there used to be this idea that the government just makes every, every number better. That's not true. The government wants to send a signal of stability and economic competence. Sometimes that means reporting lower numbers. So it's funny because when when we see downturns and they're not always acknowledged in official data, what happens when the economy turns up? Well, economic data from the government hadn't acknowledged there was a downturn, so they couldn't acknowledge the big upturn. And we're seeing this big upturn in our data. So it always blew the minds of people, particularly uh, my Chinese friends, who who would say, wow, you you came out real bullish compared to what Beijing was saying this this last month or this last quarter. I said, look, I'm, I'm telling the story of the data. And it's, it's not a smoothed out story. Every economy has ups and downs. And if you don't acknowledge those ups and downs, then you're not telling the real story. Interesting. And so the, the question burning for me is, how do you not get shut down if they want, and people must ask you this all the time, but how, how do you walk that line? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to knock on wood when I, when I say this, but look, <laughs> I, I, think, I think at the beginning, there were a lot of questions like, what, what, what are these guys trying to do? And we made mm-hmm. very clear early on that we're not bulls or bears. We're just calling balls and strikes on the data as we see it. 
And sometimes we come out and we, we, we make very clear that we don't have a lot of trust in the economic data put out by the government. And obviously, people don't always like to hear that story. But I think what probably has kept us along, uh, around as long as we have, have been, and we've been, we've been operating on the ground for over a decade, um, it's that we're very clearly just telling the story of the Chinese economy. No more, no less. So when you look back at what happened in, in 2015, for instance, in August, in August uh, summer, summer 2015, it, people were panicking on the Chinese economy. Mm-hmm. I was getting phone calls in the middle of the night from, from panicked CIOs. That's why I don't give out my, my wow. cell phone anymore. Uh, you know, saying, look, hard <laughs> landing's here. China's crashing. This is it, isn't it? And I said, no. Not only is this not it. But, you know, we broke into our data for that week and that month, and, and things don't actually look that much worse than they looked last quarter or the quarter before. What had happened is what typically happens when people panic about China. You see a few anecdotal examples of, 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 of bad things happen. So that summer, you know, the stock market took a major hit. But the Chinese stock market's not the real economy. But still, it, it affected sentiment. You know, you had a, a manufacturing gauge hit a six-year low. So people got really scared. Oh, is manufacturing falling apart? Well, the sector had a bad month. It had a bad couple of months, but manufacturing is not the economy. And then you had what people thought was a currency devaluation in, uh, in, 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 in late August, and that just freaked everybody out. They said, well, they must be panicking if they're doing these things. We got to get our money out. And markets were dropping 10%, 20%, 30%. Hmm. Nobody wanted to say what I think a lot of people under, uh, were thinking at that time, which is, is, is this real? I mean, this looks bad and people are panicking. Is it real? And we went in and what, you know, we, we, we huddled with clients for a week, 10 days. And then we came out on all the news channels and, and, and all the, and all the media, and the financial media and said, this is a totally overblown story. There is no, not only is there no China hard landing, things aren't even that bad compared to last quarter. This is huh. the best buying opportunity anybody's ever seen in years. <laughs> and it was funny because, you know, I, I had a, I had a uh, uh, guy who runs a, a sort of a competitor firm came up to me in a CNBC green room and he said, wow, it's really bold to be saying this stuff. Uh, we, we think that, but we, we can't say this. We know, well, it's pretty bold you're saying. This. It's not bold for us. We're looking at the data. We're reading the data. We're telling the story. You know, it might be bold for you because you're guessing. It's not bold for us. We're reading the data. So we felt very comfortable with our call. It was the right call. Um, and you know what? What I think episodes like that have made clear to our Chinese friends, to everyone around the world, is that we don't have an agenda. We're not here to tell a story. We're not here to to to, to talk about policy through the data. We're here to tell a very specific story about what's happening in China. And a lot of the times, uh, they're they're telling you know the people are, are too optimistic on on growth prospects or something else. And sometimes they're too pessimistic, and there needs to be a corrective. And a lot of the time, we're able to serve as that corrective. And I think it's it's instances like 2015 when we've made clear to the world that look. We're going to tell the real story, and that's what we're here to do. And so that's a really perfect tee-up to what you're seeing today. And walk me through a little bit of what's been the paradigm through the last decade leading up to kind of our, our current time. And then are you seeing any changes going into the future? Sure. So if, you, if there's a dynamic that encapsulates the last decade, it's, the, it's slowing growth. Uh, that said... Everyone Pur- purposeful or well, just you know, naturally because there was well, expansion. we're getting to that point. But it's a, it's an economy that has been it was smaller now it's bigger, uh, and it's mm-hmm. it has a lot of uh, it has a lot of uh, uh, problems in it that uh, you know you have zombie firms you have uh, you have products uh, you know shadow products that that are that are built on, on on Ponzi schemes you have a lot of problems that, that the government traditionally wouldn't let. These firms go bankrupt. It wouldn't let these mm. products blow up. And so more and more non-productive uses, uh, more productive capital was going towards non-productive uses in the economy. You know, you saw that in the property sector where you could just keep building and building and building and, 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 and based on this in, in immense tidal wave of credit that was pouring out from, from, from the government and a lot of Chinese uh, super high growth over the past, you know, two decades was built on the uh, mostly the last decade was built on this inf- this massive infusion of capital. Uh, so mm-hmm. you had a slowing economy as 
more and more of this capital was going to non-productive uses, and that would sort of slow down the the, the, the real economy. But uh, I think what's happening now is 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 a change in the growth story, and we're seeing a more severe slowdown going forward. And this one will be both both natural and and orchestrated by the government. Um, let me let me take us back uh, about a mm-hmm. teen months or so in this because the covid the covid story ever since things shut down and reopened it in china it's been very difficult not just in china but everywhere to tell the story the the, the real story because you've got these year on year comparisons which are crazy because the base effect from a shutdown economy you could have 100% growth yeah. growth it doesn't mean anything uh, so what actually happened well when china opened back up uh, rather successfully because of their because of their clampdown, uh, they had uh, you know they had a, a very strong bounce back, uh, but it was one based on the, the led by industry. So what we saw in our data, what, what the official data were saying is that when China was recovering uh, from 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 the COVID shutdowns, they had a very strong industrial recovery, but retail and services were lagging badly. Uh, shouldn't mm. surprise anyone. That's what's happened everywhere else in the world because COVID affects those more. But you know, you had an industrial recovery in China. It wasn't as intense as the government claimed. The idea that there was year-on-year growth in the second quarter of 2020 of two point something percent, uh, total, totally, uh, total fiction. Um, but that was that was the story the, gov- the government was telling because they wanted to show that the party had vanquished the virus. Uh, in any case, directionally, trend-wise, we were seeing the same thing as Beijing was talking about. Uh, but here's the thing. You know, as the recovery progressed, the near unanimous consensus in the world of China watchers was that the recovery would normalize. So, yes, industry had been leading, but we were on the verge of a giant uh, consumer spending splurge because, mm. you know, the economy is getting, getting to normal. Everything's getting back to normal. We'll see retail and, and, and services catch up. We didn't think that. Uh, we didn't think that because when we looked in our data for for second quarter of 2021, those those those, those very critical months, not only were we were not seeing a retail sector about to bounce back like everyone thought, we saw some of the worst data we'd seen in years. Uh, so not just oh. our headline metrics were all down, uh, we're slowing price gains, but also the lowest level of retail borrowing, the lowest level of retail sector borrowing we'd seen in the history of the China Beige Book Survey. So interesting. What what that didn't mean is that retail was ready for this enormous bounce back. And we prepared, we, you know, we prepared our clients for that and talked a lot about it and it, it never came. But most people were counting on this retail bounce back to happen. And when it didn't happen, all of a sudden sentiment shifted from being very optimistic about China and its COVID recovery and how well it's been doing on, 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 on recovering from, from, from the shutdowns to this sort of disappointing uh, uh, assessment. China's where is where are households where's household spending? It's not bouncing back like it is elsewhere. You know, China must be in in real trouble. And we started seeing the policy crackdowns, you know, on big tech and some other things, which made people skittish. And we saw a reserve requirement ratio cut. So basically, a, a what people thought was a panic move by the government to free more reserves at banks to loan out, and the combination of these these moves and 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 what people thought they were seeing in the economy made people very very pessimistic on China all of a sudden. And so they so you know the new mindset was well China's not doing that well. What does mm-hmm. the old playbook tell us about about uh, China not doing well? They will stimulate. They will put in some aggressive form of stimulus in order to get the economy back on track. And that's what everyone predicted. But that's not what our data were telling us. You know, if you look at what was happening throughout all of 2021, but also into the third quarter of 2021, um, still happening in the data right now, very tight conditions. You know, we see firm borrowing down. And, and you know, there's been talk about deleveraging campaigns in the past. This isn't like an old deleveraging campaign. This is something where, where you know, we're not just seeing a quarter of uh, a quarter's worth of, of slowdown in borrowing by state firms, or a few months of, of, of slowdown in borrowing by, by large firms, and then they go back to what they were doing before. What we've seen all 2021 has been this downward slope in borrowing by everyone: uh, large firms, small firms, private firms, state firms. Across every region, we've seen the same dynamic across the across the sectors. We've seen this much much tighter uh, credit environment, which is the government de-risking the financial sector, um, and and that has been very important because when when this big stimulus didn't arrive, 
since it hasn't arrived so far. A lot of China watchers have just been throwing their hands up in the air and saying, this doesn't make any sense. You know, we had a playbook on China's growth. This is what's supposed to happen. This is what yeah. the response function is on stimulus. It's not happening. And the reason is we're, we're going into a new era. And then the paradigm shift, there's a paradigm shift right now. And we're going towards an era of much slower growth. And it's being ushered in by the government. And people just haven't wrapped their head around it yet. And so this slowdown in borrowing, is that top down being forced on the on the economy or is that bottom up more organic uh, that's a very good or a question. bit of both so what we've seen uh, very clearly is that it began as top down so you can actually see the government hand at work in the property sector for instance in the second quarter of 2021 we saw the highest level of loan rejections of property firms that we'd seen the entire decade so what was clearly when happening you see yeah. When you see something like that, that's a top-down situation because ultimately they, they control the approval rates? Because they, because they control the banks and the banks were rejecting these loans okay. and they were saying this, this property sector credit, this credit excess in the property sector is going to be tamped down. And we are going – at the banks, we're not going to be uh, very permissive anymore. And this is, a, this is clearly mm-hmm. showing sort of the government mindset on this. And those firms – uh, who, which were an increasing panic as early in this, as the second quarter of 2021, were all being kicked outside the traditional banking system to shadow banking, more expensive lending. And so uh, you saw the stress way before this recent implosion of the Chinese property company Evergrande. Uh, you saw it in our data way earlier. But to answer your question, after a number of quarters, um, there was a demand response too. And so while property was panicking because they saw it was in the cards, the fact that the government was, 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 making, was, being, was being pickier in terms of who it would distribute credit to, there was a, a reaction by, by firms in a lot of sectors who were saying, well, wait a second, we're looking at the horizon now and we're seeing what could be a very different Chinese economic environment with these tighter conditions. We're not maybe as interested in borrowing mm. and investing as we were before. And so after a few quarters of the tighter, uh, tighter bank windows, we started seeing loan demand fall, and we saw loan applications fall, and we saw pent-up demand fall. And this has been an interesting thing because, because Chinese firms on the ground are seeing things that foreign observers could never see from tens of thousands of miles away. What mm-hmm. they're seeing is, a, is an economy that is going through a transition. And there was a loan demand response to the, to the government uh, uh, loan supply response. Both of those were very important in creating this credit environment, very, t- very tight conditions, but very, very much, uh, you know, very much stricter than anything we'd seen in past years. So it seems like there's been talk of this for quite a while, that the government's been signaling we need to wean ourselves off of this debt-fueled growth. And so this is perhaps finally it? It, it could be. It could be. I mean, we, we, you know, we, we, like many people, have been writing on the need for China's economy to transition for over a decade now. And what, we, mm-hmm. what you keep seeing is that, is that they would do a couple, a couple steps forward and then they'd feel pain or they'd fear some sort of social unrest or the vested interests would mount up and get angry and, and, and they'd back down. And so you'd see two steps forward and maybe one or two steps back. And that was the story of China through the, the 2010s. Uh, what we're seeing now is, is a lot more interesting because this is a much more concerted de-risking program than anything we've ever seen before. And it's not even close. You know, all of 2021, there's been a very clear financial sector de-risking program that, that's much more intense than any of the things that Beijing claimed to do in 2016, 2018 during its uh, hmm. so-called deleveraging campaign. We're seeing in the property sector, the world is seeing in the, pro- in the Chinese property sector, the, the, the risking that's going on right now. Evergrande, the company, is not blowing up. The second largest developer in China is not blowing up now for no reason. It's, it's blowing up because the conditions that have allowed it to grow, uh, this credit excess and, and the Ponzi scheme pre-sales that, that it relies on, has been allowed to grow and grow and grow. And, and, and finally, the authorities have, have said enough is enough. So the, the changes we're seeing in terms of, of, of this, uh, the, per, the permissiveness and, uh, of, 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 of credit growth and credit, reckless credit expansion, it seems to be a complete about-face from what we've seen before. And I don't think it's a coincidence that next year, you know, about a year from now, we're going to see the, the, the 20th Party Congress, uh, which is a twice-a-decade 
political event, uh, extremely important. And this is the one where traditionally the leader would give up the reins to the next leader and, and hand it off after 10 years. We're not going to see that. You know, I think everyone knows that Xi Jinping is going to stay on for longer, but we don't know whether he's going to appoint himself formally for life or 10 years. Will there be successors hmm. added in? It's, it's a political event that is completely shrouded in, in mystery and secrecy, but it's very important. And clearly, the party, as it makes its way to that, we're in the runway to the party Congress a year from now, has decided that the old social compact that the party had with the people, which was we will deliver high growth, we will, we will, we will make people wealthy, uh, it, it needs to change. You know, with growth slowing down, they can't deliver on that anymore. And perceptions of wealth and equality have become a political issue. And so the new compact that the party is drawing with the people is not high growth. It's slower, healthier growth containing risks. And we're not going to make everybody richer, but we're going to distribute the wealth broader. And as that political and social program gets pushed forward, there's an economic connection to it. And that's what's happening with slower growth. And that's what's happening with the policy crackdowns on the on sectors like like the tech sector. And I think, you know, in the coming years, you're going to see more and more party involvement with on the boards of big companies, more and more dividends from firms being sent back door out to the state to provide for the social safety net. Uh, that's the direction we're going. And this is a this is a total sea change from what we've seen in, in, in decades past. It really makes me wonder what's the motivation behind that. And Perhaps it's it's quite complex and nuanced, but I see it as kind of two camps, but perhaps they're fully overlapped of, is it coming from a place of, for the CCP, this, this about face, is it coming from a position of confidence that we have what it takes to transition into this, this new China, or is it more fear-based of, whoa, this debt is really big and we need to do something? Maybe both. But I think that the key takeaway from this is the party would not be going down this path if it didn't think it needed to. Because there's, there are risks mm -hmm. here. I mean, when you're, when you're blowing up the property sector, you know, mm -hmm. how, what percentage is it? It's not pain-free. Well, it's, it, it's, it's enormously painful. And, and 60 to 80%, I don't know what the exact number actually is, of, of, of household uh, wealth is, is invested in property. You're, you're, you're you're hurting that. You're 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 creating unemployed construction workers. You're you know you're you're going to make a lot of firms that have been around for a long time bankrupt, and you're going to create a lot of defaults in investment products that people thought were backstopped by the government. So you're creating a lot of risks here, um, and you wouldn't be doing that as the party, which is focused on one thing, which is maintaining control going forward. You would not be doing that unless you thought that the risks of not doing it were more substantial than the risks of moving forward. The reason we haven't mm -hmm. seen in the past is because that cost benefit wasn't met. Now the cost benefit is met, I think regardless of what's in the head of any particular Chinese leader. I think we know with strong confidence that they think they have to go down this route because otherwise they wouldn't be go going down it. You know, it's very interesting to think about from Xi's position, which I hardly can do, but you know, it's interesting to try that he has a lot going on right now. The whole party, this this big transition internally, opening up possibilities for social unrest because a lot of Chinese have invested savings in these these properties, mm -hmm. and they're blowing up. So their savings are disappearing. There's 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 potential for a lot of unrest. It seems like China is becoming more confrontational from a global perspective. He's clamping down on these tech giants. This kind of like a lot of fires or a lot of fronts in the analogy of a war. Mm -hmm. Why, why so many things at once? There, there's a lot going on at the, it, why not, you know, focus on one for three years mm -hmm. and then the tech giants after that. It seems like there's a, there's a very big sea change going on. And so why, why so many risks all at one time? Cause I think there's a sense of urgency. There's a sense of urgency mm -hmm. in Beijing that is not understood or felt in foreign capitals. Uh, I think if, if you look at what foreign observers usually say about the Chinese economy, you know, bad news hits and they downgrade Chinese growth by one-tenth of a percentage point over the course of several years. There's yeah. not a real seriousness of thought in terms of, of what's going on in the minds of, of those in Beijing. There's big moves happening because 
the most important people in Beijing, and one in particular, thinks they has to happen. That's 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 the answer to the question. Now, what's going on in, in, in any particular person's head? That we, we will never know that, or at least we don't know that right now. But the reason all this is happening is that the party thinks it has to move fast. It's not doing this as a as an experiment. It's not doing this to have fun. Mm-hmm. It's doing this because there's a sense of urgency for whatever reason on behalf of the party. Uh, now, look, when you, you know, a few years ago. When, when, you know, there's a lot of talk about how President Trump was alienating allies and making everybody mad. There were a lot of questions about, you know, why were the Chinese doing the same thing? Why was Beijing not on a charm offensive to try to be the good guy in all this? Because, you know, it, it looked like that was happening a little bit, maybe at the beginning of the Trump administration. And then even during COVID, it just went picking, picking out enemy after enemy, just antagonizing the whole world. Mm-hmm. We used to get all these questions from clients like, why, why is China doing this? All they have to do is just keep a low profile and, and people get mad at Trump and it'll probably yeah. go down to China's benefit. Why, why, this, why would Beijing do this? And the answer is, again, it's, it's the priorities. It's the urgency. Obviously, Xi Jinping thought it was much more important to focus on domestic issues, which, which involve rallying around the flag. The world's against us. Uh, you know, you, you can't stop this, this, the, the rise of the, uh, of the Chinese juggernaut, and those that do will get, will, will get stomped on. And from a foreign perspective, it looked bizarre because there was the ability for, the, for China to move in and to separate to the U.S. from some of its allies and maybe weaken Pacific alliances and, 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 and U.S. to European alliances, and they didn't do that. Well, it, it, history might prove that that was a really dumb thing not to have done. Uh, but I think what was going through the minds of those in Beijing was, was look, we, we are focused only on our domestic audience. They are the ones that keep us in power. Mm-hmm. They are the ones we need to keep happy and content and with us. And everything, I think, was done politically and geopolitically through that lens. And now you're seeing it through the economic and financial lens. Uh, it's really the best way to look at China. It's, it's, it's through the party needs to be working on behalf of the people. And that's how they stay in power. And so that's, that's the focus of the party. Interesting. So I'm, I'm going to talk this out loud and you, you help me realize what's actually going on here. So it sounds like a very, very ultimate importance of the party is to delever, maneuver into a new economic environment, slower growth, more stable. <clears throat> in that process is opening up potentially a lot of social unrest or anger towards the party. So... Is some of this like South China Sea, Taiwan, more aggression, more aggression in the U.S.? These things aren't about that. It's about stabilizing the society and that that political element more. And so it's all hinging off of kind of the, the interplay between we need transition. We're going to make a lot of people very unhappy. And I, I think it's both. I think it's both. Uh, there's no there's no question that that China. And the Chinese people's views on Taiwan are longstanding and they're linked to the idea that Taiwan is this runaway province and that we will get Taiwan back mm-hmm. at some point. Uh, that, is, that is completely apart from any you know, short-term economic woes or rallying around the flag. Um, that said, the timing and the intensity of the belligerence can be a reflection of the pressures that perhaps the party's feeling at home. Uh, you're looking in the South China Sea. There, there may be a need in the next couple of years to teach a lesson that the Chinese military mm. is there ready to enforce its territorial, so-called territorial boundaries, nine-dash line, in the South China Sea. Um, you know, I've been looking very closely for a long time at potential. Uh, you know, we, we play war, we do war games all the time. You know, where are the vulnerabilities in the South China Sea? You look at could could the PLA. Uh, do something to Vietnam, and is is there you know where where could the PLA strike out in a way that wouldn't necessarily bring it to war with the United States, but really up the ante in in, in the territorial uh, in, in in the near territory from from uh, you know, mm-hmm. on the on the in the sea lanes, and there's a lot of potential for for you're seeing what's happening in Taiwan now. There's 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 bombers flying over the, the islands, uh, air defense identification zone, um, you know, almost daily now. There's threats in the South China Sea. These are not the creation of the current government to deal with its economic woes, but the the level of intensity that it treats these issues could be a direct reflection of the pressures it's feeling at home. So I think you need to sort of understand the history of it 
But at the mm-hmm. same time, understand that the pressures the party feels at home are going to make it more likely to uh, to potentially strike out or, or do something provocative than than it would otherwise. And that's why a lot of the risks come from from a, a China that feels weak rather than a China that feels strong. So there's a there's a common narrative that China's rising power, U.S. is a waning power. China will eventually overtake and become the dominant world power. Maybe that happens. I certainly have no idea. But I'm assuming you have probably more nuanced view on that narrative. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, exactly that, this where is China and the U.S. going to be and how are they negotiating these, like, these, this power struggle? Right. Well, look, China is an economic superpower and it's going to become more and more important. But you can't look at China without looking at China's demographics. And China has gotten old before it got rich. So so the type of pressures it will feel will be much more intense than some of these other powers also going through democratic transitions, but that, that, that have rich economies. I mean, the United States and Japan and, and Korea and Taiwan and others. And so, you know, when you look at this, um, everyone likes to quote the, the idea that, that GDP by 2030 or whatever year it might be, will ex- in, Ch- in, in Chinese GDP will exceed U.S. GDP and that will make them the economic superpower. Well, look, GDP is a particularly stupid metric to use on anything. You can't spend <laughs> GDP. You know, it's an accounting. It's an, it, it's just, it's an accounting metric. Uh, what, what's 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 important? Our, our chief economist does a lot of work on this. It's it's national wealth and 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 in that mm-hmm. and you know what what are per capita savings and, and China lags massively behind in all these things. So on the one hand, China is a rising power. It's becoming more important. It's going to have more of a say in the world. And it has an enormous economic amount of economic leverage because it's a huge economy with a lot of people. But the idea that there's this 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 ascendance happening without severe headwinds, uh, I, I think, is is missing the entire idea. Um, you know, when I started, I told you about back in back in high school and college when I was just dealing with China. All anyone was writing about was the Chinese century. Well, the Chinese century is uh, – th- this is the rise of China this century, but China has headwinds that are more severe than anywhere else in the world between, between unbelievable amounts of non-performing debt and unbelievable amounts of old people. And so they're, they're dealing with that. And so this is a much more difficult story than just the rise of China because GDP is rising as well. Will that end up going down as the one-child policy end up going down as this – well – it's 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 a difficult one to think about because in one way it's it's quite altruistic in a sense of like recognizing that population expansion is is an issue for the the earth from a environment standpoint and our footprint but then on the other hand it's this Achilles heel of China if you look at the demographics it's it's really bad yeah, what, I don't what's think, coming the next few I don't decades. think the Communist Party was too worried about the where the earth was going when they when they created it. No. <laughs> I don't think so either, but it's like what what's going to be the how is history going to look back on that? Like, well, could have been the China century, but there was this one policy. Well, it was a catastrophic mistake, um and it's going to really create these huge headwinds for for becoming the superpower that, that Beijing aspires yeah. to. But you know, the problem is not just demographics. The problem is also this socialist market economy that has a lot of advantages mm-hmm. uh, in the short term. You know, when we talk about financial crises and a lot of you know, Evergrande has been top of mind for people in the last month because you've got this ginormous uh, property company that's in the process of blowing up. And the question everyone was asking was, is this China's Lehman moment? And the answer is... No, it's definitely not China's Lehman moment. This is a property sector distress story, but it's not a financial sector distress story because China is a non-commercial financial system. And we just hammer away at that particular line. China is a non-commercial financial system. What does that mean? It means that China controls, it owns or controls all of the major counterparties in the economy. If you're worried about a liquidity freeze, Lehman style, there can't be a liquidity freeze in China because Beijing would just tell parties to lend to each other. You know, you tell lenders to lend, you tell suppliers to supply, you tell borrowers to borrow, you tell bondholders to negotiate. So you're never going to have a freeze up because Beijing controls uh, controls commerce as sort of an extension of the state. It's a great toolkit to have in the short term. You can avoid a you know an acute crisis like the great financial crisis that hit the United States and Europe and 
the Western economies. But the problem is, is that when you're constantly just swooshing capital from one side of your economy to the other to plug holes, which you can in China, you can. You can take care of problems just by moving money around and having somebody bail out somebody else. The problem is long-term stagnation. And what you're doing mm -hmm. is you're putting more and more capital into non-productive uses, and that slows productive growth, that slows growth overall. And so the problem here is not just demographics. It's that the Chinese economic model for a long time has been built on this idea that more and more and more credit will go into the economy and will never let anybody fail. And I think what you're seeing right now is not China's model changing. It is the Chinese Communist, Mar uh, Chinese Communist Party changing the model because it fears that it's at the end of the line and that the hmm. new model has to be much more careful about de-risking. Uh, has to have much less reliance on, on non-performing loans, debt fuel growth, endless and reckless credit expansion. Because if they keep doing it, at some point they'll get an end and that will be a threat to the party's rule. So the, the, the challenges to China are on the financial side, they're on the demographic side, they're on the economic side. And I don't care what Chinese econ uh, GDP is in five years or 10 years or, or 15 years. These are the more appropriate lenses to, in which to, you, to, to view uh, U.S.-China competition, but also just the Chinese economy writ large. I can hear two count folks coming out with two counterpoints here of saying, well, you know, every nation has mass amounts of debt right now that's creating zombie corporations stagnating. So why is China any different? And then the other point would be there's we're all in the same boat, yet China's being proactive right now everyone else is continuing on the path. And so there's a possible future where in a decade or so, China's come out of this and they've already felt the pain. And they're in a healthy position when everyone's finally facing, facing the music mm -hmm. and, and that debt is finally playing. How, how do you think about those kind of those two points? Well, quite frankly, you know, th th you're right. This is not just a Chinese story. I, I think it's too late for anyone, including China and the United States, to just flip <laughs> on a dime and suddenly work down our debt. I don't think it's mathematically possible at this point. Yeah. Uh, but you're right. There is a there is a, a an eventuality where China takes these things seriously and comes out stronger on the other side. So you know, slower, healthier growth. We're talking one or two percent growth most. Uh, you know, a decade from now or 15 years from now. And China is better. Now, the problem here is that the path to get there is going to be ugly because in order to do mm -hmm. that, you have to have a lot of firms fail. You have to have a lot of people unemployed. You have to have a lot of investment products that people thought were safe blow up. So can, can the party deal with the economic dislocations from this structural transition? Are they willing to? They've never been willing to before. Are they willing to now? It's a great question. Um, so, so this is, is, is really the, you know, the framework for looking forward. It's not that China can't get to the other end of this. It's that uh, it's going to be painful to get there. And I think there's one other difference between all these countries that you're talking about, the United States and Japan and, and Europe. Everybody's running up normal amounts of debt. What happens when you get mad at the leaders in those countries? You throw the bums out. And that's what routinely mm -hmm. happens in democracies. You get mad at the people in charge, you throw them out, you bring in new people, you get mad at them, you throw them out. That's not what happens in China. You've got one party that has complete and total responsibility for everything that happens. And if a lot of bad things happen, the party will be under extraordinary pressure, uh, which is why you could see other things happen, whether on the geopolitical side, and uh, tensions boil out in, in different ways. But it means that the pressures on Beijing, the, the pressures on the Chinese Communist Party are infinitely higher than they are around the world. Because around the world, mm -hmm. you just throw the bums out. In China, you can't do that. So who are you going to blame? Where, where are you going to push back on if things aren't going well? And, and that's the big question. I think that's what the party worries about and why it's being so aggressive right now in effectuating this, this transition uh, to, to lower levels of growth and to less debt-fueled credit expansion. Interesting. And so to to wrap this up from a, a real glo global perspective, in the past when there's been slowdowns, it seems like China's massive expansion of debt has helped buoy up the rest of the global economy. And so looking forward, you're postulating that perhaps we're not going to have that. Are, are most folks prepared for that? Or is this kind of the narrative that you're, you're, help, you're, you're trying to push out of like, hey, we... 
we might not have China on our side next time there's a big slowdown in expanding their debt. Is that something that folks need to be looking out for or it should be the thing people are looking out for. The I mean, thing. look, if you're if you're an emerging market, if you're a commodity producing country, then you should be really worrying about your growth model and why you haven't hmm. diversified your economy enough. Uh, I presented to to a central bank uh, one of these country one of one of these uh, commodity producing uh, country central banks a number of years ago, and I said, "Look, I, I'm not trying to tell a nightmare story here, but." This is what's coming on China's growth. The idea that your models are reflecting 8% growth forever uh, is, is, is not only unrealistic, it's fantasy time. And if you don't diversify, if you don't, do, if you don't take into consideration the way the Chinese economic model is changing, China will go through years of transition and it'll come out the other side in one piece. You're in big trouble, though. And they didn't like mm-hmm. that. They didn't like that at all. Nobody wants to hear that story. But that's no. the story that needs to be told right now. Interesting. Yeah, because if China is the engine of the emerging markets and that engine's revving down, what does that mean for all emerging markets in general? It, it means a slower, a slower story for sure. Mm-hmm. So Leland, we're, we're wrapping up here. I got to say thank you so much for taking us on this journey into China and where things have been, where they're heading. Um, it, I know for me, even just in this time we've been talking, it's really helped clarify a lot of uh, my perspective and thoughts on China and kind of looking forward. And it's really cool because you get to provide that to folks all the time with this data that you do. And, and so where can folks find more of your work, China Beige Book, uh, if they want to learn more? Yeah, so, so we, you know, we, we work with big corporations and big investment firms, but we, we try to have a public face too. We like to be part of the, the, the public discussion. So you know, mm-hmm. we're on LinkedIn. Uh, we have a very active and very provocative Twitter feed, which is at China Beigebrook. <laughs> uh, we try to get out and, and look, on our website, uh, we want people to check our homework. So we put all our media that we've ever done in the history of China Beigebrook by all our people on the website so mm. people can, can take a look and, and they, can, they can see that we've said what we said we said. And, uh, you know, I would encourage people to follow us along, follow the story. And, uh, you know, it's, it's it, big things are happening in China right now. That's always the story. But right now, big things really are happening in China. And so this is just it's fun being part of the storytelling. Awesome. Well, thanks again for joining. I super appreciate your time. No, thank you, Bradford. Thank you for having me. And that's a wrap. If you like what we do here, make sure to like, subscribe, rate, and review. It's the best way to help us get our content out to the most people, and that way we can keep doing this every week. So we look forward to seeing you next time, and thanks again. 